Wits and Cures with Lindy Burns, lawyer Bill O'Shea and psychiatrist Dr Steve Allen. Welcome to Ritz and Cures for this week. And tonight our special guest is Swinburne University Vice-Chancellor Professor Linda Christensen. And her career includes a range of interests spanning over three decades across Australia and Canada and the United States. She started out as a palliative care physician and went on to become the first professor of palliative care in Western Australia. Well, these days she's got the top job at Swinburne. So what's that experience been like for her? Looking forward to that conversation. And first up... We look at the issue of committal hearings, where cases are reviewed in the magistrate's court before a decision is made on whether, you know, the evidence is strong enough for the accused to be required to stand trial. So why is it being questioned? In most cases, the accused is sent for trial. So are they being considered to be a waste of time and money? And if we no longer have them, is justice still being served? Bill O'Shea, welcome. Nice to see you. Hi, Lindy. Good to be here. Hi, Steve. Hi, Lindy. And uh, Bill, we'll start. Go on. Soapbox time. Well, Lindy, what, no, what is a committal hearing, um, firstly? Uh, well, what I have committed to do is make this interesting. So I'm going to – that's my first committal. Um, commit, committals are all about um, whenever somebody's going to be char- – or is charged with an offence, before they go to trial, um, there's a short one- or two-day hearing in front of a magistrate, even if it's a murder, murder case, in front of a magistrate, where the prosecution brings out whatever evidence they have in front of the magistrate and the magistrate has to make a decision as to whether there's a a likelihood that this person will be convicted if they're sent to trial based on the evidence. And if the evidence is pretty thin or isn't up to much, it's quite possible for the magistrate to say, I'm discharging this accused. Um, I'm not sending him for trial because the evidence is insufficient. So the purpose of putting that committal hearing in in the first place... Was what so we didn't end up wasting the court's time? Well, WA and Tasmania have abolished committals, and um, the effect of what that means is that if somebody's charged with an offence, they go straight to trial. Now, for some accused who plead not guilty, they might find at day four of the trial, which they say costs thousands and thousands of dollars a day to run, the evidence is so overwhelming against them they plead guilty because they do better with a, often with a plea of guilty. If the evidence is overwhelming, the sentence will be better for them. Uh, But they haven't had the opportunity to make that assessment earlier, which is what the committal does. It gives them a preview of the case against them. So if they're going to plead not guilty, um, uh, what's the evidence against them? And if it's overwhelming, uh, an accused will quite often change their plea to guilty. And, of course, if they're pleading not guilty and the evidence is thin and the, and, the, and the prosecution is scrabbling around trying to concoct some evidence, the magistrate will throw it out. Oh, so there now, won't even be any point. There's no, no chance to even so, so you don't even run the expense. So the argument for saying that committals are a waste of money and slow down the system, they sort of act as a filter to prevent a waste, the waste of money. You know, all of my law knowledge, is, which is quite extensive, obviously comes from law and order. And uh, Hang so on, before we start, we need to get you so we can hear you. I, I don't think you need to hear this at all. <laughs> Try <laughs> that again. Thank you, Steve. Go. I'm susp- if you couldn't hear me a second ago, I'm suspecting foul play from yeah, the lawyers. I, I, I turned your mic down. <laughs> but in, in essence, what I was just introducing was, you know, all of my knowledge comes from law and order and suits. So, you know, it's not that great. But I've had, you know, I get the... I get a little bit confused by all this, I've got to say. So the police investigate crime, <laughs> the, um, some sort of office, the public uh, prosecution decides... What are correct. they called? Yeah, the Office of Public Prosecution. Yep. They decide whether the co- case goes to court, 
And then before it gets to court, we've got this other step, the committal hearing, yep. where it goes before a magistrate, so mm-hmm. not the high-level fancy judges for murder and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, and they say, yes, there's enough evidence or not. Um, and I had a, you know, I had a read of your notes, Bill. I did. I, I read your brief. I read your brief. I charged, you know, six-minute increments to read it, like all good lawyers. Pretend lawyers do that too. And so I had a look at it. And the well, gist well, of it you're watching Law and Order. It, the gist of it seems to be that a whole lot of people say this is a waste of time. It's just lining lawyers' pockets with an extra hearing. It's wasting court time. It's slowing up the process. And I've got to say, when I look at it, surely our our public prosecutions office. What, what were they called again? The, the Office of Public... Office OPP. of Public... OPP. Surely the OPP is skilled enough to decide whether there's enough evidence, and surely they don't get it wrong very often. So I didn't get why we needed mm. a judge well, as well as the OPP. I'll give you an extra twist to the story, and that is that the OPP can, in fact, override a decision about committal. So a magistrate could say, as one famous case, which I won't name, in Melbourne, uh, the, the magistrate committed the person to stand trial... But the OPP said, we're not running the case. We don't think the evidence is good enough. We're not proceeding. And so, so who won? The OPP? The person was never put on trial. Right. Because the OPP said, despite the magistrate committing them for trial, we're not going to prosecute. Because there's so no the point. the OPP has its power. And the, it also has the flip side, that if the magistrate doesn't commit the person for trial, the OPP can put them on trial in their own right. Right. So this whole system's a mess. And the reason, you know, that's very confusing. So the Can I just jump in for a brief yeah. moment? I've got a couple of texts from people saying, Lindy, the, it sounds like the boys are off mic. We're aware of that and we are sorry, but the microphones are just playing up in this studio and have been for a couple of days. So we are going to do the best we can. I know that mm. I can be heard okay, but the other two do are not so much. <laughs> well, if you, if you stand <laughs> outside the ABC building, we can be heard out in the street. <laughs> you can, but just not here. It might be a solution for some people. So we do apologise. Um, we're trying to fix it. That's all we can say. Mm. So we'll just continue with this conversation and hopefully so, will, um, it'll get fixed. So why this has all come out now and you think, oh, look, what's O'Shea bringing this in for? You know, it's just made up. Well, the fact is that the Criminal Procedure Act is under the microscope with the government and the Law Institute, which I'm a great fan of, has made a, a submission to the government not to throw out uh, the committal process. And it's been looked at for the past 12 years uh, you know, will we or won't we? The previous government had a good look at it. Robert Clark, when he was the Attorney General, had a good look at it. Um, and now the Criminal uh, Lawyers Association, the lawyers that do criminal work, are very concerned that this might mean not just lining their pockets, but that the system, the solution will make the system worse for the reason I just ex- explained before, that, that uh, too many cases will go straight to trial. They'll be fluffing around for a week. They'll then abort because the the accused pleads guilty, and all that money's wasted. So, but, so you know, hit me with the key the key problems. Why don't you trust the OPP? Is it because it's politicised? No, no, it's what's not the OPP. The, it's the you mean. Uh, why do we need right. this step though? Why, if we've got because, the OPP well, recommending whether okay. something goes to trial, why don't we trust them? And this is where the the bleeding hearts of the lawyer comes in. If a person's liberty's at stake, it's incumbent on the crown, and this goes right back to Magna Carta, to demonstrate their case, to prove their case, not just on more likely than not, but beyond reasonable doubt. And the same applies if you're going to put someone up on trial. It's a big thing to put someone on trial. And so if you want to do that and put their liberty at stake, you should have decent grounds for doing it. You shouldn't just have a half-baked piece of evidence that won't stand up in court and will be thrown out. But why, why, would, they, you why would the OPP that? decide yeah. that they were going to do that anyway if they have no chance of well, winning the case? 20% of cases don't... At the moment, 80% of cases get 
go through. They're, they're committed. Uh, so the magistrate will recommend going to trial in 80%. So there's 20% of them where the magistrate won't allow the case to go on. Uh, so does that trial. mean the OPP is getting it wrong one in five times? Not, not really. It just could be that when the evidence is put under the microscope and there's a bit of cross-examination going on, the facts come out that this isn't a great case. Now, that doesn't mean they couldn't persuade a jury. And, and another interesting case in, um, in Melbourne, which I won't name either, is where the magistrate decided um, that, he, uh, that he would not commit the person to trial. The APP overruled the magistrate and the person was convicted. The magistrate took the view there wasn't enough evidence to put the person on trial. So the APP overrode it said, we don't care, we're going to bring a prosecution in our own name, and the person was convicted. So so there are checks and balances in there. Okay, so I get that. So my next question then is, putting my science hat on, we've got two systems in this country, two states that have no committal hearing, mm. the others that have a committal hearing mm. in various versions. Why don't we just simply get you know, a bunch of people who know how to crunch numbers and times and say, which system's working better? Because every case is different. Um, it's a bit like talking about mandatory sentencing. No two cases are the same. No two bodies of evidence are the same. Um, no two cases what are the same. What about things like average time to trial in WA versus Victoria? Um, you know, average number of cases that are dismissed yeah. early in WA versus Victoria if you say that this process mm. um, reduces the number of cases well, that are dismissed The Law Institute's view on that is that it's not the committal process that's causing delays in getting to trial. It's lack of resources, lack of courts, lack of um, uh, judges, uh, all the sort of issues around... Too many people being naughty. Dockets, too many people being naughty. Couldn't you argue, though, if you got rid of the committal hearing, you'd save a whole lot of money and be able to have more judges focused on getting the cases to trial Well, for the reason I said before, uh, you actually lose money. The PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, had a look at the cost per hour of running a criminal trial back in about 2008, and it was 650 an hour. Now, probably in 2017, it's double that. So let's say it's a thousand an hour to run a criminal trial. By the time you pay everybody, you know, every uh, the cost of running the trial. Now, why would you run a trial and uh, uh, without a committal, and then have it a, have it stop halfway through when the when the accused pleads guilty? The reason and you, you burnt all that money. The reason you might do it. Money. The reason you might do it is because a committal hearing also probably costs a thousand dollars a day. It's one day. Right. At the most two days. But my point you being... You must have been to a committal. You're a doctor. There's I have. doctors at committals every week. Well, no, I've ever, only ever been to one. And it was actually very useful, I've got to say, because it resulted in the person changing their plea and it, and they didn't need to go to trial. So it was actually very useful for um, the, the process. You're not but, agreeing with me, are you? Nearly. Well, I'm trying not to. I'm trying. You know, you know what my pro- basic problem is? Look, I'll tell you, Lindy, you know what my basic problem is? I'm incredibly suspicious whenever any professional group advocates for something that means more work for them. Now, I see it with doctors all the time, accountants all the time, lawyers. You just never see them standing up and say, yes, we recommend to the community that you use less of us. I mean, and I'm not suggesting that we're um, all professionals or a bunch of self-interested um money-hungry people, but naturally they're passionate about what they do and they always believe that the community needs more. If they're doctors, they believe the community needs more doctors. If they're nurses, they say more well, nurses, counts more. And so I I'm don't just think suspicious. the world needs more broadcasters. Well, do you reckon? I don't. Really? No. See, but I reckon Bill... See, Bill's never taken the side... And I'm not, I'm not having a go at you, but can you remember in five years when you've taken the side to say we need less law in the community? Uh, well, I think the Law Foundation is a great example of how you can get self-help in the law. Right. Um, they're just that we had um, Joe Kirby on a couple of weeks ago. She just retired last week, 
And in fact, her successor, you might be interested to know, Lindy, is Lynn Hultane, a former broadcaster from the ABC, who's now the Executive Director of the Victoria Law Foundation uh, as of Monday. Uh, that puts out things like a guide to doing your will, uh, how, you know, how to avoid right, major legal costs. Uh, it's a huge resource, funded, I might say, by the Public Purpose Fund, that is the interest on solicitors' trust accounts, clients' money, in, where the interest doesn't go to the client yeah. or the lawyer. It goes to fund um, the foundation and legal aid and lots of other things. But that's a really good thing. But, like, doctors, you tell people not to smoke all the time. If you are really serious about... Yeah, doctors have a very strong view about public health, which is not in their professional interests. Look, I get what you're saying. And, and, and of course, I'm not criticising lawyers per se. I'm saying I'm just suspicious of any professional group that has a strong opinion that says when, that supports their own workforce. And I agree, lawyers do a whole lot of good things for the public, just like doctors do, just like dentists do, just like nurses and broadcasters. But I always get suspicious. We need committal hearings. I don't know if we do. Well, I'll give you another... Can I just jump in? I just want to ask before you give anything. <laughs> I want to say... How much of a delay is there? How, and how, how serious is this problem? How much of, uh, is there a delay for people getting to have... That's you know, why this has gone on for 12 years. It just goes... It's going round and round the houses because it's houses seized what? upon... Parliament. Oh, no, it's a metaphor. Uh, it's just seized upon by opponents of the system to try and nobble the committals hearing because, because it, you know, they think, um, let's not worry about this right, right of the citizen to have a fair go. Let's just bang them up on trial and... You know, put them away and throw, put them in jail and throw away the key. It gives vent to them. But there's no financial reason to back up what they're trying to do. But let me just take you through one of the changes, which I thought was quite interesting, <coughs> um, speaking to the criminal bar about what, um, what is proposed. At the moment, if you want to cross-examine a complainant in a committal, and we're talking about a two-day thing, you know, is there enough evidence or isn't there? Um, normally the complainant stays out, particularly in sex cases, sexual assault cases. You, you try and keep the complainant out of the picture as much as you can. So a lawyer who thinks that their client is innocent and wants to sort of tease out the evidence from the complainant can ask the magistrate uh, for leave or permission to cross-examine the complainant. And the, the magistrate has to consider it. It's not automatic. The, the lawyer can't just call the complainant and cross-examine them. Under the changes to the Criminal Procedure Act, the the a magistrate what has to happen now is that the magistrate cannot allow the complainant to be cross-examined unless the complainant's information is absolutely critical and fundamental to the case. In other words, they've made it harder to cross-examine complainants at the committal. That's what the provision is. Now, the Law Institute opposes that, right? So that's, you might think that's particularly politically correct. What the lawyers say is, my client's in the dock. If I want to cross-examine the complainant, I should have the right to get the, give the magistrate get, to get permission, and it shouldn't be made harder by saying you can only have that permission if the evidence of the complainant is absolutely fundamental and critical to the case, which is what the new provision is going to be. So it will protect complainants, if it goes through, from being cross-examined at a committal. Now, the lawyers are opposed to that. Why? Because they act for the, often, you will, often act for the accused. They want the accused to have the right to put the complaint in the dock if necessary. Which is the big concern about the adversarial 
court system justice system particularly in, in sorry, sexual offence cases particularly in sexual I'm sort of thinking of that old who's on first what's on second I don't know who's on third I've got a little bit confused <laughs> I've got to be honest well but look at the I moment the you fact. need permission yeah, but no, it's no, going no, to be because, harder to get you don't have to explain it again I, you know I, I'm sure that, I'm sure the public get it even if I'm a bit I've, slow I've got a dip head I've got a dip head you should get it immediately <laughs> I shouldn't have to do it twice I have one final question yeah. okay let's just ask this from Phil if at the committal hearing and I apologise for the microphones people I really do we're trying our best. Um, if at the committal hearing the magistrate decides not to take it to trial, then at a later time more evidence comes to hand, can the charges be reinstated? They can be because there's no... Hang on, we can't hear you. I can't hear you. Try again. Uh, no, you're not there. There's no... <laughs> Sorry, Bill. Can I suggest you come to Stop. South Bank Boulevard and stand out? <laughs> we'll open the window. And we'll actually have a conversation window. out on the street right now because that's about all we can. We may have to stop this conversation and I'll play some music and we'll see if we can. Um, the answer is you can. You can. You can. By the way, I'm paraphrasing here. Yes, you can have the charges um, reinstated. Thank you, Phil, for your text. Ritz and Cures with Lindy Burns. This is Ritz and Cures, Bill O'Shea and Steve Allen are with me and our special guest tonight is Swinburne University Vice-Chancellor Professor Linda Christensen and her career includes a range of interests spanning over three decades across Australia and Canada and the United States. Starting out her career as a palliative care specialist in 2011, she took over the top job at Swinburne University. That's the role of the Vice-Chancellor and it's a great Pleasure to have you in here, Linda. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. So when you started out as a, as a specialist in palliative care, it's such a difficult place, to environment in which to work, I would imagine, looking from the outside. What was it that drew you to that uh, particular specialisation? I was a palliative care specialist and a pioneer in the uh, late 70s, really, and I was attracted, I guess, to working with people who were facing end-of-life issues. I found it as a health professional extremely rewarding because the conversations were real. Uh, it required a team approach. It was complex. We were dealing with uncertainty at that time around how to manage pain, symptom distress, and how to engage and support the family. So intellectually it was challenging, emotionally uh, it was rewarding, and I loved the teamwork. When you say it was pioneering days, what went on before that? Before we had probably very little understanding of how to support people at end of life. The uh, focus was on cure. And if people were not cured, it was deemed a medical failure. And uh, there was really very little knowledge and research to inform how to support people. And so uh, I was in Canada at the time, and we began some very active work at looking at how to improve uh, pain management, uh, management of nausea, shortness of breath, fatigue, all of those consuming symptoms that take over quality of life. And when we started to become more sophisticated at understanding types of pain and symptoms, we could treat it more appropriately, give people a better quality of life, uh, and, and a more dignified death. Mm. Now, I've read your um, CV, Linda. It's incredibly impressive. From your work in palliative care, you went from pretty much it seemed from one scientific um, area to another, chairing various boards. What was your pathway from clinical care to becoming a vice-chancellor and leading a major university? Mm. Well, it's not a, a path I deliberately charted. I follow the next open door. For me, I've always been committed to good medical care, good health care, and education. And those two worlds intersected for me. I became a researcher about 30 years ago, and then I moved into research administration. 
What I quickly then learned was that my last thing I did by myself as a researcher was my PhD. After that, everything else was interdisciplinary. So that brought me into greater collaboration with other scientists, social scientists, engineers, IT specialists, to solve the problems that we needed to tackle. Um, And then I was attracted to Australia in uh, about 21 years ago to take up the inaugural role as the chair of palliative care funded by the Cancer Council of Western Australia. Uh, That then led on to me being the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research because I'm a bit of a research choreographer. I connect dots. I see the possibilities of bringing people together to solve problems and uh, then was um, invited to take up the role as Vice-Chancellor at Swinburne in 2011. So it's been an interesting journey. I see a a story that connects, um, and I think for me, I've always been a bit stimulus-hungry, and I love the variety. Took the next opportunity that Mm. presented itself. Bill? Linda, I just wanted to talk to you about the law school. I think you have the the most uh, the youngest uh, law school, in, certainly in Victoria, if not Australia. Um, <clears throat> and when the Chief Justice went to launch the law school, I think it was last year, it might have been the year before, she said that we wouldn't have necessarily approved another law school but for the fact that this is unique. This law course is unique. It's a, it's a clinical-based law course. Could you just explain what that means in terms of why the Swinburne offering is so different? Yes, we um, we addressed the, the opportunity to offer a law school that really built on our unique capability. Swinburne is a university that specialises in sec- t- science, technology and innovation. We saw an opportunity to create a law degree that would focus on commercialisation, IP and technology transfer, and also take advantage of our expertise in clinical-based education. We do that with all of our programs, whether it's engineering, IT, design, health. We bring in practice experience from year one. And we uh, recommended that this would be the best approach for an innovative law degree to allow the students to really graduate, ready to hit the ground running. So we um, mounted this program, and students uh, take on a practice-based experience from year one. We have a partnership with the Leo Cousin Center for Law, which means that they have a dual award when they graduate as of 2018, and they're ready to to practice. Uh, and so I think our very industry-focused and profession-focused uh, approach has really been helpful. So does that mean you no longer do, was it... Articles? Uh, well, articles have been gone for some time, it, okay, but, you, sorry, but you don't have an extra year of right. practical legal training, right. which right. is uh, which is it's for most universities that's still the norm that you finish the degree and then you go to the, uh, the College of Law or to the Leo Cusson and do your practical legal training. But this will be done simultaneously, simultaneously with the degree, yeah. isn't that right? That's correct. Yeah. And many of our students are also look attracted to a double degree because they will want a law, engineering, law, science, law, and IT, and that's attractive. And they'll see real clients during their Absolutely. degree. Absolutely. Do you know what reminds me so much of that? That uh, what was a very innovative medical degree at the University of Newcastle mm. yes. back in the late seventies when I was first going to university, and, and that the, the whole implementation of pretty much being in the hospitals from day one. It's prob- problem-based learning, and yeah. it began at McMaster University in Canada. Right. Newcastle picked it up, and you can still tell who the graduates are from these programs. That's fascinating. They're exceptional. They have, uh, I think, a holistic approach to their thinking, and they're really creative. Yeah, Steve. This is one of the things I do love about Swinburne. I lived near there for years and, um, you know, it does have a very different feel to all the other universities. And the universities are famous for being conservative, the ivory tower. 
So how do you make Swinburne flexible enough? You know, how do you keep that flexibility so that it is more adaptive, more responsive to the, what is in reality a very rapidly changing community? Yes. Well, I think that um, we see ourselves as a public university that's here to serve our community, and that is our prof- the professions we serve, industry, uh, the not-for-profit sector. And our mission is to really create social and economic impact. So we, uh, I think, really have a DNA that has been built on technology, built on a willingness to be innovative. We were the first university to have an entrepreneurship program 20 years ago. Uh, and so I think it's deep into the, in the character of the university, and it attracts people who have more of an outward-looking, engaged focus. It's my aspiration that the university will be the most engaged university in Australia. What do you mean by engaged? It means that we really have quite semi-permeable membrane between us and the rest of the university. We have industry co-creating curriculum with us. We have a new engineering program, for example, a professional engineering program where students are engaged with industry from year one. We have PhD programs where the PhD students spend the first year in industry. So that's a university program that is really aimed at the future, having future-ready graduates that are prepared with the skills, the attributes, the confidence that they will need for the careers of the future. Mm -hmm. We can't do that by ourselves. Uh, We need to work with industry. We need to be part of that cutting-edge work environment to make sure that we have graduates that are really career-ready. Part so, of the, oh, I was just going to say, part of our problem, though, is we have no idea what the... You know, I think more, more than ever, we don't know what the future looks like. We don't know what the popular jobs are going to be in 10 years' time. We don't know what... Uh, there'll be new specialties. There'll be new industries popping up. It's, you know, it's already occurring. How do you sort of... How do you anticipate? You know, because you're trying to prepare graduates yes. for 10 years' time. How do you, as a university, any university, how do you anticipate what you're training people to do when we're in this massive period of flux? I think um, what we're, we're aiming to do is really give students the, the, the tools to be ready for those jobs of the future, which means they need to be digitally literate. They need to have um, an exposure to innovative thinking. That's a mindset which will allow them to adapt to what's coming next. So we have an elective for all students in any undergraduate program to take an elective in um, entrepreneurship and innovation. So whether they're doing social sciences or whether they're doing engineering, they will have that kind of opportunity. The other, I guess, way we do it is build in that industry-based learning. So every student in every undergraduate program has an opportunity for industry-based learning, even if they're doing a BA in philosophy. I was going to ask you that. So, yeah. it's, so they're still in the sort of the general arts approach yes. at the university, but somehow you're putting a a technical element well, into that? a real-world, you know, a real-world practice experience. And as Bill said, it's a, it's a clinical education or problem-based learning. So to take a, a more an unusual example, because it's obvious if it's aviation or engineering or business yeah. or design. Um, but if you were doing a BA and uh, you're majoring in, in philosophy, we would find you a placement where you might work with uh, an ethics committee so that you would then use your ethical reasoning, your logic, to work on those kinds of solutions. Build the application. The student then goes back to the classroom and they're very excited about what they have to learn because they now have a context and a way to yeah, hang, that, hang that learning uh, in a real-world framework. Yep. So that's, those are the ways that we're trying to make sure that the students are future-ready in a world that's changing. So when you're actually finding these placements for them, yes. would that also be the case in the law course? Yes, yes we So are. you go to firms and say, we want you to take our students for... Yes. And do they have to pay them? Oh, that's too much detail, It'll, I guess. No, no, there'll be a mixture of, of They don't have to, programs. actually. If it's part of their course, there's it's no part, obligation to pay right. them. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. 
But right. I think that that is a difference. Um, we many many universities would encourage students to have a placement or a professional placement, and the difference is we find those. Yeah, it's very hard for them to do it by themselves. Well, for some families yeah. that are well connected mm, and educated, course, yeah. that's fine. But for many families, once you come from the country or interstate, or, or your first in family to go exactly. to university, yeah. you won't have that. So we make that promise, and we've been delighted that we have had more placements uh, for our. Law students, in particular, and others as well. Then we have students. Dan Hunter must be a very good salesman. Anyway, this is the professor <laughs> at uh, the new faculty. I just wanted to talk to you a bit about computers, though, because yes. um, one of my—I um, should declare my interest here. I chair the College of Law, which is a major competitor to Lea Cousin. But uh, I don't mind you mentioning Lea Cousin, and uh, it's a great institution as well. But one of my board members on the College of Law is a. Uh, Involved in the, in fact, involved in the OPP that we were talking about earlier, the prosecutions, and what he's saying is that a lot of the new graduates coming out of law schools can't run a modern trial in an electronic courtroom. That so many trials nowadays, particularly the terrorism trials uh, and complex cases with multiple defendants, and even a royal commission like the Bushfire Royal Commission are technology-driven. Yes. And it's no good coming out with an academic law degree if you don't know one end of the laptop from the other other than doing your Facebook page every night. So that would be an opportunity for you, wouldn't it, for Swinburne yeah. to produce these law graduates? That, that's the main that's the main street for us because uh, we um, really build in that digital enrichment to all of our curriculum and our programs because we agree that the, the pr- practitioners of the future in whatever field they're going to be in need to be comfortable in the digital world. And the, even the searches that will be need to be undertaken are, are digitized now. So they need to have that comfort in working in that space. We're doing it in health sciences as well. Mm. So people who are doing an occupational therapy course with us need to understand how they might work with sensors and computer devices to monitor people in their homes. Of course, that makes sense, doesn't it? But often it, I think it you know, gets lost along the way until we start to look at the practicalities of the, thing, the work that these people are being trained to do. Professor Linda Christensen is with us. She's the Vice-Chancellor of Swinburne University, uh, starting her career originally as a palliative care specialist and, uh, and now running a big university in, in Melbourne. There's a lot of lovely texts from previous Swinney graduates, Linda, who are coming through, say, I went to Swinney over 35 years ago. I had a 12-month compulsory industry-based learning. We had to do finance and commerce in the final year of applied science. Keep it up, Swinburne. So it's obviously been going for a while. And going back to the palliative care aspect of your, of your career... Mm-hmm. And this sort of brings in some legal stuff as well, Bill. It's a person that says, I do palliative care and I've had clients who have confessed to all manner of things from petty crimes to war crimes. Are there any legal obligations to report or is there client confidentiality that I just can't break? It's interesting, isn't it? I'm mm-hmm. sure that you would have found yourself in, in not necessarily anything as deep as that, but people would would reveal things to you, but perhaps they haven't revealed to other people mm-hmm. over the years. So what are the legal ramifications of that, Bill? Oh, there aren't any, Lindy, really. Unless there's a serious or imminent threat, and someone in palliative care probably doesn't present a serious or imminent threat to themselves or the community, right. um, it's something that should be kept in confidence, told in confidence. There's no ethical obligation to disclose it, uh, other than the fact that there might be a, um, you know, a, a risk to somebody. Okay, yeah, that makes makes sense. Steve, back to you. You know, on your topic of um, you know the. Uh, digitalization computerization i was wondering you know what what does a classroom look like now in my day a classroom was a square room with seats someone at the front 
We had whiteboards, but it was probably blackboard era. Um, yeah, you can throw chalk if you've got a blackboard. <laughs> yeah, which is useful. We had to throw uh, um, those whiteboard markers. I used to um, throw those. Yeah, I was quite but, good at those. So what does it look like now? Is the classroom different? Absolutely. Uh, oh, how disappointing is that? Yeah, well, there are a few classrooms, and we, of course, naturally have our moot court. But um, what we're finding is that so much of the content now is available online. So students come to class not because they need somebody to stand there with, you know, death by PowerPoint. They come for someone to really help integrate their learning. So we have more studio spaces, uh, more you know, study spaces, project spaces, labs. We have a design factory, for example, which is the Design Factory Melbourne, which is linked to the Design Factory in Aalto University in Finland, Tongji and Stanford. Students will work on a real industry project in the design area for industry, deliver to milestones that industry wants in a, in a timely way. And they are connected visually with screens so that they can see the design students in other parts of the world and they work on an interdisciplinary project. So that's the future. We will not be building a lot of large theatre and classrooms. We will be building more studio spaces and spaces where people will come to integrate their learning or have simulated learning experiences in the health areas or or architecture or design. Do you see there's a point in the future when even they will be obsolete? Will we sort of using, I don't know, holograms or something <laughs> beaming into our Virtual glasses? reality, put on those little glasses yeah. and just sit at I home. I think technology is pushing us. We are in this 4.0 world where the physical, the digital and the biological worlds are just intersecting, changing the way we work and the live and and and, um, and relate to each other and it's, it's extremely exciting and we're embracing that. We have about 80, well, I guess 8,000 students who study fully online. These are students who we have a very enriched program for because they are used to a high quality of digital learning. Everybody's used to those TED Talks and they are high quality. This is not droning on for a three-hour lecture. These are short, sharp, 12-hour conceptual exercises. 12 minutes. 12 minutes, sorry, 12-minute yeah. exercises <laughs> where they can really grasp a concept, try it out. We, we can be connected to them really seven days a week. Uh, we can tailor the learning to them. So using technology to enrich the experience uh, is really what excites us. I just want to ask too about, um, you talked about the health sciences. I don't know, is there a medical course at Swinburne? We have a Bachelor of Health Sciences, okay. which then feeds into a range of master's level courses that we are developing, occupational therapy, the allied health areas, physio, uh, sports science. How hard is it then as somebody who, who comes from that background to not play favourites when you're the boss? Oh, I love all my students. <laughs> I, I really, it, for me, I mean, knowledge is converging. So it's about bringing all of these fields together, and it's terribly exciting. I think the thing that I have found most um, exciting about Swinburne is the design-led thinking. Mm. Design-led thinking means you put the user at the center. And that is the student. And therefore, it changes how we have to operate. So we're not here to sort of please the, the academics. It's about how can the students learn better, which means we can personalize our learning. And that's the design thinking that's deeply embedded there. Um, so it's quite exciting. I'll give you two examples uh, of Swinburne's. Uh, one, both at the Alfred, when I was at the Alfred, um, was the, the Alfred needed some work done on signage around the and. Who better to do it than the uh, uh, design department of Swinburne? Because who, they're cheaper. 
because they, they, they my one of my sure colleagues' sister is the uh, dean or something of the faculty, <laughs> and she got all the students doing it. You know, and it was just a great overlap of design and health. You know, mm. and what you need for people who are under stress and need to find their way around a complicated building. The second is which I talked to Linda about before we came on is the trauma reception and resuscitation project Tara, which uh, when a patient comes into the emergency department. There's a on the screen is a checklist of all the things the emergency doctors have to do, and the idea is that you don't miss one of them out. For example, you don't take forget to take the blood pressure, big problem. So they're all there on the list, and this is this has been developed by Mark Fitzgerald and his team at the Alfred. But the software is Swinburne, Swinburne software. So they collaborated with Swinburne to produce this, mm-hmm. which has now gone to the U.S. Army. Uh, have picked it up for for um, use over there because it cuts down the medical error rate because you can't you don't make a mistake because you've got a list sitting there on the screen and if you don't tick it off that you've done it it beeps at you until you do so it's a great example or two examples of where your technology and health overlap which i would like to see in the law i guess we are going to see it in the law we will as a matter of fact dan hunter our, our dean of medicine was or dean of law rather was very involved in creating an innovative teaching uh, app to help students to to uh, digest their materials using gamification so students would get material they could ask, ask a question each um, each day have it rated there would be a leaderboard they could get feedback <laughs> this is the way we're, we're teaching and learning <laughs> It's different, well, so. different to the old quad at Melbourne Uni Law School. I don't you know, know ta- talking of Melbourne Uni Law School and <laughs> Melbourne Uni Medical School, when I went to university, um, when we were in first year, 80% of the kids were from private schools. Mm. And that was in the post-Goff Whitlam era where things had changed. And, you know, a lot of my mates in the government schools, their parents had either taken out, they took out like a form of superannuation to save for them to go to uni. It all opened up and, you know, so by the time I got in, it was free. I'm still concerned, though. Have we got the funding models right have we got good access for all socioeconomic groups to get into our universities now that's a big question um (laughs) just say yes (laughs) no what do you think i I think that we have had some improvements because we have had an uncapped uh, environment for undergraduate students we haven't had the same stability and certainty around funding policies for vocational students uh, and I think that we have seen some improvements in the low socioeconomic groups coming to university, but, but we've got more work to do. So there's particular work, for example, with Indigenous students and helping them find their pathway. Um, so I think that there needs to be a very well-thought-through framework for tertiary education that will look carefully at how we're going to fund it and how we're going to invest in higher education. Other uh, countries are investing much more Mm. in tertiary education. We seem to be going the opposite direction and pulling back. And if we think about the knowledge economy, if we think about the 4.0 industrial revolution, advanced manufacturing, all of the uh, smart professions that we need, it's not the time to shortchange higher education. Mm. And you've got links internationally. You've already mentioned the design links. You've got links with uh, Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv University in Israel. We also have links in China, Beijing Institute of Technology, where we're doing work, as well as in India. So that would would mean students could set up networks with their counterparts in those universities? We have students from 100 different countries 
studying mm-hmm. with us. They make up about uh, less than nineteen uh, percent of our population. But we really encourage study abroad because that's what this industrial revolution's about. It's digitization, but it's mm-hmm. all about globalization and international connections. We know that when our students graduate, they are going to have to be comfortable working in a global world, either through the e world or face to face. So if they can build multicultural competence through through study abroad experiences, we really mean to uh, make make them more prepared for the future. The thing I love is having conversations with people in their 20s and early 30s and they and they don't see any boundaries. No. There's no there's no boundaries. There's there's just opportunity. That's right. And um, you know, for a majority of them, there there are some that that, that feel very much closed off from this, but um, I think the expense element of it is is, a, is fundamentally a massive issue now in comparison to when, say, Steve and I were going through, and it was so free. Um, Nicola has said, and she doesn't say what university she went to, but she says, "I'm a mid practically, I mean mid practical legal training, and current, currently completing my placement. I'm gobsmacked with how little practical skills I've come away with from university, and I'm incredibly grateful for what I am learning now in the law firm, but wondering what the last five years of a double degree really taught me in real world terms. Uh, by the sounds of it, she probably did not go to swim, but well, the, the degree's only yeah, just been set up. You can't it? write a letter to a client about a breach of contract if you have not studied contract law, but, but you do have to know how to write the letter. And the practical legal training is how to do the letter. But if you don't know the law of contract, what's the point of being, writing a good letter? Oh, yeah, I don't think she's saying that she shouldn't mm. have taught, learnt that at all. But, you know, it would have been you nice to, to learn the learn, basics. But you have to know how that's going to be and implemented. Sw- and Swinburne, you'll learn them in parallel. That's right, isn't it? You'll learn yeah. both. We do. And I guess for us, it's about building their confidence. Their We've confidence got, and their skills. Uh, you've got a minute to answer this. Seriously, one minute. So what's next in 10 years? What? How... What needs to change in order to keep up with the demands? They're going to close Burwood Road. That's what they'll do. In in order to keep up with the demands, I think that universities are going to have to become much more open. So this is not just about us. It's all universities. The days of the ivory tower are gone. This is about uh, really being the powerhouse for our nation in terms of education, technology, and research that is going to create the innovation. People are talking about innovation as a buzzword, but it is where we have the know-how and the capability to really transform small and medium industries to create smart technologies, advanced manufacturing, smart cities, address wicked problems of health, uh, social issues and housing, and that's where universities can have social and economic impact. Do you feel as though that's changing, that there's a sense now that between a community and the universities within it that there's less of that dividing line? I believe there is, and I think universities really uh, have always had that capacity, but there has been a, uh, an exciting time in the development of tertiary education where we see ourselves as increasingly playing a central role in the relevance and the future of the country. Interesting conversation. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Professor Linda Christensen, who's the Vice-Chancellor of Swinburne University, together with Bill O'Shea and Steve Allen on Ritz and Cures tonight. And just a reminder, of course, that Ritz and Cures is available as a podcast, and you can uh, go to your favourite podcast downloadable site and, uh, and access it, and you'll be able to catch up on this particular program and others that we have done over the last several years.